This is episode number one with Katrina Webb. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on your impactful journey. Katrina is a three-time Paralympian and three-time Paralympic gold medalist. She's a keynote speaker, TEDx speaker, a philanthropist, and a mother of three. Seriously, guys, this episode blew my mind on how many aha moments and gold knowledge bombs Katrina was able to share. She is one of the most inspirational women I'm lucky enough to know. I've known Katrina for more than 10 years, and I've known her by the nickname of Webby, so I do refer to Katrina as Webby throughout this episode. Now, this episode is unapologetically long, and we still didn't cover everything, but I have split it into two episodes for your listening convenience. If you're new to the long form and or new to podcasting, just remember you can come back to listening at any time. In this episode, you will learn what fear actually is and processes to overcome fear, how to not let negative thoughts dictate your mind and how you have the power to control your mind, why giving is such a powerful process in creating success and fulfillment, how choice, acceptance, presence and belief will help you achieve your goals and visions, and how values and purpose are the most important drivers in our lives. We also speak about Katrina's tough situation at the age of 18 that completely changed her life, how her time on Mount Everest is her fulfillment, what it was like having dinner with Sir Richard Branson and Usain Bolt, and we cover so much more. Enjoy. Katrina Webb, thanks for joining us on Your Life of Impact. It is so wonderful to be here with you. Thanks so much for giving me the opportunity. So we're sitting here in your hotel room in Sydney and tomorrow you're taking an international flight to KL, is that right? I am. Yes, I'm heading to Kuala Lumpur tomorrow and I'm really excited to be going to, wow, my first ever actually international marathon. I'm going to the Borneo International Marathon, not to run the marathon, not even to run half of it. I've done one half marathon in my life, but I'm, it's a real honour. I've been invited by UNICEF to go and attend the first ever event for kids with disability. They've got a three kilometre event at this marathon, so it'll be really good fun. Brilliant. That sounds awesome. I uh, I think you'll be running a marathon in no time, though. <laughs> <laughs> haven't yet uh, haven't yet got those ability, the desire actually to work out how I would run a full I'm marathon. With you there. Absolutely. You and I are both <laughs> yeah, sprinters, so right. I can completely understand <laughs> yeah. what you're saying there. So I'm super excited about this uh, this chat because you have a great story. You have developed a deep understanding of 
mindset, not just yours, but everybody's mindset and how to tap into it in a powerful way. And also, I have so much respect and admiration for you as a genuine human soul that you are. So I'm super excited about this chat. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. (laughs) Now, we've known each other since 2005. I was an athlete at the Australian Institute of Sport and you came, you moved from Adelaide to Canberra to train with who was my coach at the time, Irina Dovaskina, undoubtedly one of the world's most successful Paralympic uh, track and field coaches. And you came and trained with us there. So I've known you since 2005 and we've caught up a lot of times over the years around the country and even around the world in 2012 and uh, Rio 2016 Paralympics where you were an ambassador for both. So we've, we've had a few different journeys together. Yeah, look, um, wow. Yeah, some great memories heading back to the AIS in in 2005 for that period of time to train under Arena and uh, I was heading into Com Games and really a highlight of my career, to be honest, um, under her amazing coaching abilities. But, you know, to hang out with you was pretty good fun as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it was good fun and I, I will admit you were a, a great role model for me because you're a physiotherapist too, correct? I am, yeah. That's what I did, um, you know, you finish school and uh, and I was always good at school and I was always one of the kids at school that was keen to you know try and get straight A's and I did work hard I was one of those kids that was really prepared to work hard and got good grades and thought what do you do with good grades is back then you know physio medicine didn't really want to be a doctor maybe law didn't want to do that and so physio was a thing that I I started with have the degree but I don't use it much now (laughs) I'm sure you use the knowledge that you receive from it even if you don't actually work as a physiotherapist that's right I work enough to stay registered which is lovely I really do enjoy having the the patient contact um, every now and again Um, but yeah I learned so much about you know being analytical being solution based from being a physio Um, and it does come into a lot of the work that I do now I think even the way physios are working there is some physios out there that um, are you know psychologists um, and working as physios and, and using the power of the mind and I think it's one of the reasons why I didn't spend too much time in physio in my early days so I graduated in 2000 is that often I'd see people and I knew I couldn't fix them physically Um, Not everyone, but I could see some people as a physio, I just couldn't fix their problems because I knew it was their mind and their Mm -hmm. mindset. And I got frustrated with that. And and so a part of me was always really probably more interested in if I was to look back and and if I could do things again, I would have gone back and studied psychology. I just didn't realise in my early years that that was probably where I was you know, passionate about trying to understand the mind. But there is physios now that are really, you know, investigating more about how powerful the mind can be and getting the great results as a physio as well. Love it. And we're going to unpack that a lot more as we move through this chat. Before we do, you have three kids, three awesome little boys that I've uh, met a few times. And I must say they're little athletes and rock stars in the making. (laughs) And I'm just warning you, Webby, they are going to break some girls' hearts. Oh, look there. You know, I'm so blessed. I've got three sons. Who would have thought? Um, (laughs) And yeah, and my husband, um, you know, was Olympian himself, water polo player, goalkeeper for the Australian men's water polo team. So with my background as a Paralympian and his as an Olympian, um, you know, we often joke around that we don't expect too much of our, our kids at all, except Sebastian, our oldest, who's now nine, did his first marathon when he was two years of age. And, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that, is there? No, no expectation at <laughs> no all. No expectation at all. No, <laughs> they're beautiful souls. And look, they, we're lucky for us. They do like sport. And 
you know, obviously if it's something you both know well and did well, it just comes out. They, they, you know, for them, they see us doing it. It's a part of our lives that they're already showing the love for it. And I, I remember just saying to Sebastian the other night, I'm so glad you love basketball because even if you didn't, I'd be making you do sport anyway. <laughs> you know, physical activity and sport is so important for our well-being. Um, so whether they like it or not, they will learn how to, you know, to do sport for their own for their own goodness. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. You're an amazing role model and uh, of strength and resilience to so many women around the country and we're going to unpack some of the things that you're doing as a women in woman in leadership. But you're just as influential to men in my eyes and I've had some powerful women mentors in my life with my grandmother and my mother who are pillars of strength for me. Uh, Irina that we spoke about just before, she is an amazing woman of strength and I always look up to female leaders. Uh, I don't actually compare leaders whether they are female or male. I've been blessed to have that same sort of guidance in my life and I feel your energy and see your contribution to this world and I just want to say that your three sons and your husband for that matter have one of the most amazing female mentors in their daily lives that they could ever ask for. Oh, thank you. I'm excited <laughs> to see their growth oh, just from your leadership. Yeah, look, uh, that is just really kind words. And, well, we just need so many more of you out there, Brett, because, um, you know, unfortunately so many people are stuck in their unconscious bias, right, of what leadership looks like. And a lot of that is around men and males because that's what they've seen and known. So it's just wonderful that you've had that experience where there's no judgment based on gender of, of who is a great leader. You just look for the qualities that um, and probably taps into the values of what serves you so yeah look I, I really try and live um, through what I really am passionate about and um, and my family you know they don't get me all the time and I never feel guilty around that because I think if we can we can all still have impact I can still be a mother I can still um, be Katrina I can still have an impact on other people as well as my family so um, you know it's a it's a wonderful job to be able to do both and and make sure you're still having good impact at home and with your relationships at home but also um, for the broader community as well absolutely now, before we learn about your sporting career, uh, can you tell us what is cerebral palsy and how does it affect you? Yeah, so cerebral palsy is um, it's actually considered a neurological disorder caused by either a malformation or an injury, usually around when a child's brain is being developed. So for my case, it was... Um, while I was in utero, uh, my mum was never unwell and never had an accident or anything. It was just something that had happened. So I could have just done a somersault in utero and my umbilical cord could have wrapped around my neck or something something had to happen to cause an injury to my brain or malformation of a brain. So for me, it was an injury. So it could have just been a lack of oxygen at some point. Um, so I'll never know what it was. Um, that's essentially what cerebral palsy is. So it's it's to do with the brain, and um, as I said, most cases it's in in before you're born. Um, so for me, I have I had a brain scan done only a couple of years ago. I never ever had one done before, and I was really interested to see whether you could actually see. Um, see whether I had a brain because I am naturally blonde and I've copped so many jokes over the years but my brain looks I'm really quite proud of it <laughs> it looks great it looks healthy but there's this one area of white a white patch and that's obviously the scar tissue um, before I you know was even born so um, because of that small injury that's where I feel the effects on it's in my left hemisphere so I feel the effects on the right side of my body so cerebral palsy isn't progressive um, 
it is permanent, of course. You can't you can't change an injury to the brain or if a brain's formed in a different way. Um, you can't cure it. Um, but I, I often joke around to people that it's not contagious, you know, because people have different myths of um, – if they don't understand a disability, they can be really, oh, am I okay? So it's not something you can catch. <laughs> um, they're really keen to work out what causes it, but they still are yet to uncover it. They're looking for genetic links. Um and uh, you know, people are always wanting to work out what it is and where it comes from. But it's such a miracle, you know, having a baby is such a miracle that I, there's so many things that can go wrong that can cause lack of oxygen to the brain. So often, when they, you know, only of 80% of the cases they don't know why, and the 20% they do know why, it's babies that something either has gone wrong with. So babies that are born before 30 weeks, so something happened to cause them to be born early, which is obviously also a lack of oxygen. So that's where the cerebral palsy comes in. Um, often you can have twins and one twin can be fine. The other one can have cerebral palsy because there was some compromise in utero. Um, so that's what cerebral palsy is. It's, um, it's, it's, luckily for me, I was born with it. So there's no comparison for me. I, I didn't acquire this. It's a congenital thing for me. So it's, it makes it easier to, to live with when you don't know any different and to know it won't get any worse um is great like my my brother and sister in fact have type 1 diabetes which is you know the juvenile diabetes where their pancreas just decided to stop working and so you know every day they have to inject you know five or ten times insulin and their lives are dependent on this so you know i see myself as being pretty lucky in fact if if it's something i've got to live with that doesn't actually get worse and doesn't threaten my life How old were you when you found out you had cerebral palsy? So my story is interesting because, you know, I was born fine. Nothing was picked up at all. At age three, though, my grandmother noticed that I was limping. And so went off and got investigated. And so when I was three, and this was the year of 1980, um, I'm 40 this month, so I'm um, going back, yeah. Um, they, They picked up, they didn't do any scans back then, but they picked up that that I had suffered a very mild injury in utero. But they never mentioned the term cerebral palsy um, to my parents. So it's kind of like it got diagnosed, but it didn't, if that makes sense. Um, and I often wonder why it happened. And I talked to mum and dad about it and how it was sort of told to them. And I, I think the doctor at the time, you know, he realised I was pretty mild, very mild, Um and, you know, back then, particularly in the 80s, I know, you know, I'm from Adelaide um, it's probably very similar across Australia and even other countries and, and we're quite developed in disability. But even back in 1980, things were still developing for people with a disability. Uh, I don't even remember in my school years, I'm not sure about yours, but I can't even remember one kid in my school when I went to a public school that had a disability, you know, and that's... It's heartbreaking for me to think, you know, I'm nearly 40 and it doesn't, it wasn't that long ago that disability wasn't even in mainstream school. It is now, which is fantastic, but you couldn't see disability. Um, and, you know, a lot of places like uh, children's therapy places were called the Spastic Centre and Crippled Children's Association and all these terrible names. I mean, they came from goodness and they were doing great things, but, you know, I, I know parents that were embarrassed to even 
just tell that their kids got something wrong because they don't want them to go to the Spastic Centre or the Crippled Children's Association. In fact, we had a place in my city that was called the Home for the Incurables, that if you had really severe cerebral palsy, you were institutionalised. Wow. Yeah. So this is not that long ago. Um, and so I, I have this feeling back then that because I was mild and uh, it, maybe it was easier just to say, she'll be okay. She's, this is, she's just got a small injury from birth in her brain. But look, she's good. She's only limping a little bit. But I did, um, from that point in time, I was given this little plaster to wear on my right leg. So from age three, I had to wear a, a, a plaster that would keep my ankle at 90 degrees at night so my foot wouldn't relax too much, which would cause my calf to tighten. So I had to wear this plaster to bed every night uh, until I stopped growing. Now I'm just under six foot, so it was quite some time. In fact, it was around 3,000 nights and 72,000 hours. <laughs> I can even Who's tell you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so I had, you know, I had physio um, because they were the ones that made the plasters. And I would see a physio once or twice a year. She'd just stretch my calf. She'd give me a new plaster and away I would go. And I would see a doctor, a specialist, and he always couldn't believe how good I was doing. I never had to have any surgery or any any other therapy, in fact. So I was always really mild. But my parents never knew it was called cerebral palsy, um, which didn't matter. It, it was just a label. But I, I, So I did know I had something from the age of three onwards. But the thing for me, though, when I, when I tell my story is and of interest to me is at what point do we as human beings and children decide or firstly we have the ability to realise there's something wrong with us. So you've got to be a certain age to have the capabilities psychologically or in your brain to realise to look at yourself and to realise, you know, who you are and how you work. And then you've then got to have the ability, which is quite high level, for me to look at you and say, okay, that's Brett, you work that way, I'm different to you. So you've got that ability to compare. And I've spoken to a couple of psychologists and they kind of say around the age five to eight, depending on your own development, um, cognitive development. So somewhere for me around that age, I would have developed that and I started to realise that my right side was weaker. I limp when I get tired. I can only just move my right toes. I can't curl them over, which is quite significant when you sit there and go, wow, I can't move. Left side works. Left side, that's so easy to do. I cannot even move. So you go, as a kid, you go through those things going, why doesn't that not work? That's stupid. That's broken. That sucks. I'm different. And because of all of that, my right side is thinner because my muscles don't work as well. So that was probably the thing that bothered me the most was being conscious that as a young woman, particularly, that people, I couldn't hide the difference between my calves, for example. I could probably cover up the fact that if I was limping, if I was tired, I could make up, you know some lie that Mm -hmm. I had a sore knee or ankle, but that was a difficult one. If someone said to me, why is your right leg thinner than your left? It's pretty hard to answer that one. So, you know, for me growing up as a kid, it sort of really still upsets me to think at what point did I feel like that if people knew that there was something wrong with me that made me different, that they wouldn't like me. Mm. And I clearly remember having that conversation with myself so I then negotiated with my mum and dad and I said mum and dad please don't tell anybody please don't tell anybody that there's something wrong with me I know we we can't really see it but can we just keep it within the family you know it would have been somewhere in that age 
between five and eight. I mean, who does that? This is what we do um, as human beings. And so no, no one sort of knew. I, I didn't want them to tell anyone that I had to wear this night plaster. If a friend came to stay, I would hide it, not just under the bed because we'd play hardy under there. I would actually strategically think of a place where no one would find it because that was really embarrassing for me. Um, so that's, the, that's how I played it as a young kid. I, uh, I just wanted to... I just didn't want to be different. I didn't want to have one right side that didn't work well. And I just wanted to be like everybody else. And I didn't understand why it was me. And that strength that you develop from that mentally and physically to try and hide that disability, that sort of leads us into your sporting career. So you were on scholarship at the Australian Institute of Sport as a netballer, as an able-bodied netballer, 1995, can you just take us back to those days and tell us uh, what happened in in your time as an able-bodied and how you transitioned into Paralympic sport? Yeah, yeah. Well, you're right. I mean, one of the one of the best skills I learned from trying to hide or show everyone that I was good enough was that I learned to work hard. And so for me with my cerebral palsy, sometimes I can't learn things straight away, but give me an extra session and I'll learn my own way and I can learn to be quite good at things. So I even remember growing up skiing. We lived on the the, um, River Murray and we had a boat and to learn to ski on one ski took me a lot longer and my sister could learn straight away. But the amount of effort that I put into learning, I would never forget it the next season where she would because she just popped up so it was interesting for me to my sister was only 14 months older and she didn't have that have to worry about that physical side so I just learned how to work hard and whether that was driven by me trying to prove to people I was good enough or whether I had that whether I was born with it I'll never know but it was a good skill right um it got me to the AIS as a an able-bodied netballer one of 12 girls from around Australia which was which was cool it was really exciting and I, I must say, I just had two beautiful netball coaches that I'm always forever grateful for, that they knew that I had a weakness on my right side, but they they could see the me inside um, that really had the enthusiasm, the passion to help and to lead and to to be my best. And I'm, I'm forever thankful for that because they really, um, without them affirming my abilities I don't think I would have even got that opportunity to go to the AIS if that makes sense I had and these two beautiful human beings just believe they could see my potential right back mm, brilliant. then brilliant they didn't if, know that it was cerebral no palsy. but they knew that there was a weakness mm-hmm. there but they just backed me because they could see my human potential and I've gone back and written them letters of gratitude and I'm sure you've spoken about gratitude on your programs how such a powerful tool that is to not only for your own positive emotion but wow imagine how they feel when they receive it some 20 years later to say thanks again because you were those people you really made a difference for me and thank you and so yeah I find myself at the AIS in 1995 and it happened pretty quickly in fact um and 90, 1995 was a hard year for me. You know, I was 17, uh, turned 18 in May. And firstly, I get an injury on my right side and a considerable one. I never had an injury before. And I my patella tendon starts to break down chronically on my right leg, which is the leg with my CP. And it was just the increased court time. And my body just actually couldn't, you know, handle the load we were doing. So that happens. I spent about 10 weeks off the court and we tried every single bit of you know therapy to get me back on. We experimented with all these new things. But finally, when I got back on the court, 
the most heartbreaking thing for me in that year was when the team, the names of the team would come up, you know, on the door on a Friday to say, this is the team that's been picked to travel to play in the, we were playing the best league in Australia, which is one of the best leagues in the world. You know, my name wouldn't be on the list because there was a few, there was, um, you know, there's 12 of us at the AIS, you'd often just take a team of 10 to travel. So two would miss out. And the next week I'd miss out and the next week I'd miss out. And, and that was just really heartbreaking as a young athlete. You know, you're doing everything you possibly can and you just start not getting picked for the team. And hard work had got me to that point. And at this point, it wasn't going to get me any more, any further. And, um, you know, they say, whoever they may be, that hard work always pays off. But at this point, not. You know, for me, there was nothing else I could do. The fact was, and it was the truth, that I probably just was never going to be good enough to play at that next level in able-bodied women's netball. And that's not easy when you're 18 and that that's where I wanted to be and I was still hiding my disability and I trying to work out who I was. And then on top of all of that, I, I find out that what I have got that I'm hiding is called cerebral palsy. So it was just as simple as my physio actually talking about this CP that I had or cerebral palsy. So she labelled it. But it was also Chris Nunn who was coaching athletes with a disability at the time. He even just saw me walk one day and he he even noticed my cerebral palsy straight away. And so it gone from me being this netballer, having an injury to then not being picked for the team to all of a sudden realising that I could potentially be a Paralympian, which was certainly what I wasn't planning on going to the AIS for. So it was a complete change of my journey. Um, and, you know, to be honest, initially when, you know, when Chris told me that I could go to the Paralympics, I, I wasn't excited. I wasn't jumping with joy. I mean, he was. He was so excited because here I was as an able-bodied netballer and I had cerebral palsy that fitted just exactly where, you know, there was an event for me in the Paralympic Games. He's like, this is awesome. How did you get this far? <laughs> and I knew he was so excited. But when he first told me, I wasn't because there was fear in that. Yeah. That's hard at that yeah. age yeah. to cope with everything else that's going on, let alone all of a sudden you learn you've got a disability and then for someone to jump out in front of you and say, actually, that disability can take you around the world and you can compete for Australia, yeah. which might sound exciting to, I'm a Paralympic coach, so I can understand the coach's yeah, excitement, yeah. but I also understand human behaviour and how much that could affect you. What were the processes you had to go yeah. through to through that transition period? Yeah. Well, do you know what? You know, this is kind of what I heard in a really quick way. I heard, you know, Katrina, if you get classified and, and you can qualify in a Paralympic sport, you could be in Atlanta in a year's time in 1996. And this is 96, so Paralympics very different. No one even knew what it was back then, um, not what it is now compared to what you experienced. Wow, London was a sellout. Rio was fantastic. It's I'm so proud to see what the Paralympics has become. But, you know, I, I heard Paralympics, if I go to Paralympic Games, means I'm a Paralympian, which means people know that there's something wrong with me. And then what I heard in my own, you know, my, my own head was, and I deeply hate this part about myself. You know, it was pretty clear. You know, I didn't hear, wow, represent Australia. I just heard, ah, oh, and then I heard, if I deeply hate this part about myself, then why was I worried about that? Because it goes into what will people think of me? Will they like me? Will I be good enough? 
Um, so the, the process that I went through and I can't remember, maybe it was my coaches at the time encouraged me to go and sit down with a sports psychologist. So probably one of the best places to be at the AIS, the Australian Institute of Sport when something like this happens because they had very good support. And I sat down with a sports psychologist and to be honest, it's one of the best things I've ever done. And we're talking about mindset, right? So this is, you know, some 22 years ago. And he said to me, look, let's talk about this situation because it's, it's life-changing potentially. You know, you could either do nothing and ignore it or this could be really life-changing. So let's have a look at, let's have a look at all your fears and the negatives, right? And it's interesting as human beings because we, we have a negativity bias and it's so easy to come up with negatives really quickly. We do it so easily. But to come up with positives and opportunities takes harder work. So basically he sat me down and, you know, then the, the fears and negatives come out pretty quickly. You know, will I be any good? What will people think of me? What happens if I fail? Will they like me? Will I fit in? You know, all of those questions around um, judgment, I suppose. And when I share that, I'm sure people that are listening will go, hey, you know, don't worry, I hear them as well. And, you know, funny thing is I still hear these fears often. You know, whenever I put myself out of, the com- out of my comfort zone or do something new, yeah, I still hear, well, I'd be good at that. You know, <laughs> what happens if I fail? What happens if people don't like it? You know, I still hear those fears. It's, it's a part of being human and it's the way our mind is programmed. And that's okay. It's just when they get in your way and stop you from doing the stuff that really matters, then, it's, then you've got to work out something, a way of getting around them. But when I actually looked at the opportunities, you know, they were I could represent my country, which was my ultimate goal. I could, um, which for anyone in sport, I think that is your ultimate goal. You know, if if I go into Paralympic movement, I obviously have a chance of winning a medal. Which again, if you're an athlete, if you could win a gold medal, that's extraordinary. Which if you win a gold, it means you're the best in the world at something, which is just great. So all of a sudden, I went, oh, okay. Well, that was kind of that were my goals. I just didn't realise it was going to take it. This was a different path travel like you said like I um I'd never traveled overseas before at that point I went oh Atlanta's and you know <laughs> I'm gonna have to travel to that but funny like last year I was overseas five times I think this year I'll be overseas at least six times and I still don't pay for it and that's you know some 22 years later I if someone told me that back then I would have been like yep I'm in like, <laughs> this sounds great you know I just didn't realize the potential but I the thing that actually got me most excited and was the most difficult to be honest was I remember asking myself a question and saying why am I so embarrassed about having something wrong with me like why do I hate this thing so much and it's not an easy question to ask when you're 18 but I knew it wasn't serving me because I was having to use a lot of energy to hide it and I know if people are listening, we, we do this as human beings. It can be the smallest thing that we hide. And sometimes it's our choice. I mean, we can hide things. It's okay. But we have a choice also whether we don't. And we can find tools to to not and try and be authentic. And the reason why I, I didn't want to hide anymore was because I actually couldn't be me. You know, I was trying to be the version of me that didn't have a disability, which was never going to be me because I couldn't fix it right. And it was just hard work and it was tiring worrying about whether people would catch me out and what was I going to say if I had to do this and and I just thought look if I become a Paralympian I'm going to have the opportunity to be the best athlete I choose to be and if I do the sport of athletics which I end up doing no coach can tell me I'm not good enough because if I run a time I'm in and how good I am is up to me but if I become a Paralympian 
and get into this space. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it well. I'm not going to go in there and have a go and leave it. I'm going to have to learn tools to be a proud Paralympian, and that means learning to, you know, somehow accept myself. I didn't know how, but I was really keen, and I just knew that that was so much better than me hiding. And I just had this young image of some young kids with CP just like me. You know, mild CP, because sometimes when you're mild or you've got a disability that people can't see, it it can be difficult because people don't think you're disabled enough or they can't see it so they think you don't have anything wrong. And sometimes it is easier to hide when people can't see things. But I, I just had this image of some young kids with CP just like me and I just thought if I could do this and then they've got someone that they can see. And when you can see it, it's easier to believe it, right? You know, I know there's a big thing going around with women's sport and we talk about this with women's sport. If, if women can't see women doing the stuff at the high level, if it's hard, you know, if you can't see it, it's hard to be it. And it's often hard to be the pioneer. But if people can see something that they can be, then they're more likely to be it. So for me, that ignited my passion and purpose. I didn't realise then, but what it did do was touch my core value of making a difference for people. And I was in. As soon as I connected that with that, I just went, okay, I'm in with this. I know it's not going to be easy, but my values are speaking to me about making a difference for people. So what do I have to do? Brilliant. That's such a powerful lesson. I mean, acceptance. There's, it's so easy for us in society to, to not accept things that happen. And I like to teach people and I like to think about it and operate in the way of understanding that nothing ever happens to us. It only ever happens for us. And I mean, there's a lot of shit that happens to us in life and it's really hard to flip that. But when you can actually flip it and say, all right, I accept that this has happened. It's happened for me. How am I going to learn, grow and develop from this? So for you to learn that lesson at that age, that's extremely powerful. Yeah. Well, it's the only thing we have responsibility for, right? Like it's the only thing we have choice over because we, we can't change what happens to us. I can't go and reverse what how I was born life happens to us stuff happens to us that can be heartbreaking but we can't change it Mm. but all we've all we're left with is our choice over how we choose to respond to it and no one can take away our responsibility you know our ability to respond and if we can learn as human beings to like you said grow and and often it's not easy and it takes time but if we can find meaning and make meaning through hard times that's a really great skill for developing our resilience or others you can see it and I you know I even saw it today where people become victim of their circumstances and that's heartbreaking because they lose the power you know, they lose power to move anywhere. So they become, there's that learned helplessness where if stuff happens to us, then we can go through a process of finding meaning in it. We can just grow and learn and, and become, you know, become a better part of the journey of life. No one ever said it's going to be easy, but there's there's some wonderful things to experience in life. Absolutely. Mm. And it's all about perception too, as you'd be aware. And the, the perception that we create on the situations that happen to us Um, or for us so when you can change that perception that's where the power starts to come in so that to me is the power of your mind and what I sort of alluded to at the beginning and you understand the power of your thoughts and feelings and behaviors so what about the process that's evolved since this decision making uh, when you were 18 years old at the Australian Institute of Mm. Sport 
do you find yourself now delving deeper into different areas of it but still reflecting back on this it seems like this was an aha moment for you yeah do you reflect back to that and then and oh, always yeah and because I'm a speaker um, and and have learned to share my story to be honest it's probably been fantastic therapy <laughs> because when you actually have to go and relive and I know for some people that can be painful and there was moments for me yeah that I I had to go through and go why did I do that as a kid and and I've I've used some wonderful alternative therapies one of my really good friends is a breath worker and when I feel like I get stuck in some points I'll go I need some help and I'll go and do some work with her and then it's amazing what I unpack particularly around something in my childhood that I didn't realise had cemented itself in way back then and I go, aha, there's my aha moment. And even having children now, that's a, that's an interesting one because my oldest son is nine and last year I was hitting a few emotional spots on sharing some some of my story and I didn't know where it was coming from and I, I went and chatted to my friend and I said, I, t- I think I need your help here. And what we unpacked is the age my son was, was probably the age where I was starting to, you know, to hide. And I was, I was hearing my son say things like, gee, I'm dumb at that or I'm no good at this. And I hadn't heard any, he's my oldest, I hadn't heard any of my children say anything like that before. And I started to hear him already being hard on himself and I, I tapped into what I would have done as a kid and it really triggered something in me. Um, so it was really great and I didn't have that connection. And when I went and worked with her, I went, wow, there's the connection. You know, he's really hit a point where I would have been doing what he was at that point. Um, we do it as human beings and here I was then having a disability to try and hide. So, um, yeah, it's – the. Th- it's just been the whole journey for me when you are a speaker is you reflect on so many moments of your life and where you learn to grow and build. And But the thing where I probably got most passionate about this area is, and I'm so thankful for sport for being the vehicle for this because I've mentioned I already saw a psychologist in 1995. And when you think about it, I mean, you're talking about mindset. I mean, sport does this well, not all sports, but Sport is the only vehicle I know that accepts psychology as an enhancement to get gold and to get the best performance out of people. I mean, who else does that? (laughs) Like, you know, I use a psychologist to learn how to focus, to learn to, you know, compartmentalize, to go from work and to sport and then, you know, to be able to be present, to be mindful, how to deal with stress, how to deal with failure, how to deal um, with success, uh, how to stay calm when you needed to be calm, how to try and pick yourself up when you needed to. But the thing that I got the most out of working with psychologists over all of those years or reading books or understanding the power of our minds was how to deal with unhelpful and unwanted thoughts and fears because it's part of the human condition. We're never going to eliminate them. But if we can find tools to to have acceptance like you've already and make room for them wow it means that you can step out of your comfort zone knowing you're still going to face them but you've got some tools in your backpack to know what to do with them and I'm just so thankful for sport because if I ask the same question to people like when have you used a psychologist in life in your life and most people never because they don't we only tend to see psychologists in life when we're worn out burnout stressed out grieving trauma and it has of course it has its place and it's so needed there but that takes us from being unwell back to normal or to recovery but to go from recovery to 
you know, our best performance and all of the tools around mindset that you're keen to unpack. We don't just go to a psychologist just to learn how to perform at our best, do we? So it's, that's where I've just got this love for, for this space now. That's brilliant because you're really enlightening us to and everyone to the power of psychology can have some negative connotations attached which I think is why people might only go there when things are really bad and they Mm -hmm. think okay I need a bit of help yeah it's a weak people think it's a weakness to go or their mind's weak because of something that that's when you see a psychologist in that old stigma or traditional ways oh I'm strong I don't need a psychologist because my mind's fine only Mm. weak minds go to psychologists (laughs) and you're right and sport is brilliant for don't go and see the psychologist when things are wrong go and see the psychologist to learn how to optimize your performance and if everyone in society could think Uh of it in that way and i guess too we we don't have to just uh talk about psychologists uh in that sense Mm. now there is a lot of people working in that space that are really utilizing the amazing skills absolutely yeah it doesn't mean you have to go to one there is so many good books there's so many ted talks there's so many great podcasts like you're doing now (laughs) like this is the age of information sharing and so I just endorse for people to get into understanding their mind more. I mean, that's pretty much what it is. Is if you can, we tend to understand our physical body, and but our our mind is such a powerful tool. You know, it can be our worst enemy, um, and it can be our cheerleader. And uh, you know, I know I don't need many other people to sabotage me I can do such a good job of doing it myself (laughs) you know the committee meetings we all have of uh and no one hears it but just the stuff that you go really am I good enough maybe I shouldn't do that maybe I might fail and you go on and this is just myself right um I love to share this story because it it makes me laugh still I I had the real privilege of doing a TEDx talk last or two years ago now and for most people that are speakers it's a a great thing to do and so it was it was on my list of things to do and I got a phone call one day that said would you come and speak at TEDx um, at Sydney Macquarie University we've heard about you we think you'll fit our day Um, what we need you to do is write a proposal how your stuff will fit and if it passes our board we might be able to put you on a program and I'm going wow this is awesome like it's it can be difficult to get on a TEDx program so I'm sitting there going, oh, great, what do I have to do next? I'm speaking to this guy going, yes, what do I need to do? Tell me more. Meanwhile, I'm having a committee meeting with myself. <laughs> he doesn't hear this, but this is my internal discussion going, oh, gosh, like TEDx, that means you've got to stay on that red dot and you can't move off of it. And you're not allowed to have any notes and there's a live audience of, you know, 600 plus people and then you're live streamed and then, you know, they obviously package that up that can be shared with the world and so automatically I'm thinking, what happens if I get really nervous? Like I still get nervous. I'm a human being as a speaker. We all do. But what happens if I got really uncontrollably nervous and I, you know, messed up? What happens if I made a mistake? You know, what happens if I'm no good? What what will people think of me? You know, I have all these again all of those story all those yeah wonderful fears and then I even have this one which makes myself laugh I even had a thought yeah my own self that said Katrina why why don't you just be busy on that day like don't even check your diary but just if you tell him you're busy guess what you don't have to do it and then it was like yeah cool relief you know if I say no to this Ah, relief. Comfort zone. I'm back in my comfort zone. I don't have to worry about getting nervous. If I say no, oh, that's just the easy option. It means I can just stay safe in my comfort zone and I don't have to worry about all of that fear. And and I had that conversation with myself, you know, and I, I laughed because I was thinking, well, I even said that to myself, maybe you're just busy. 
But for me, it was something that was so important that I wanted to do. Didn't mean I didn't have any of those fears. I recognized them. They came and I just went, you know what? Thanks, mind. You're just trying to protect me. I really appreciate that. Um, but this is really important to me. So I said yes. And I did it. And I, you know, made sure I got four coaches to help me. I made sure I rehearsed probably 300 times. So I knew it back to front, just like being an athlete. I did the right process. And I went and delivered it. And I absolutely loved it. And it, and it worked. I was really happy with the outcome. Um, but it just goes to show you never, even when you get really good at this stuff, you, you can't eliminate negativity bias or your fears. It's just part of being human. You just need to find ways to accept it and make room for it. Um, that's the key. Understanding the tools that yeah. you actually do have within you to control yeah. the the power of the mind. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, I, you know, not only for... What I, I didn't, I became interested in psychology around sport, but I also became interested in the psychology around why we hide, and that was something after my years of being an athlete. I just really wanted to try and understand myself, like as a young kid, why did I feel like I needed to do that? And so, one of my very good friends was a psychologist, a youth psychologist. So she got me to read this great book called The Happiness Trap by an Australian called Dr. Russ Harris, and and this was quite a few years back. And I read this book, and I just loved it. I just went wow that's the process I've done even though I didn't really realize a lot of it that I'd actually gone through as an athlete it just hadn't been labeled in this great way and, and his work is based on acceptance commitment therapy or training so I read that book as soon as I could do his next course I was in I think I've read about 12 of the textbooks now and I just really love this work you know it's, it's called acceptance commitment therapy right or training so it's about learning to accept committing to what you value and what you're good at um and you know and practice it so some really I don't know if you've shared with your listeners around about that before but it's something that I really uh love um and most of my work now is based on act or acceptance commitment therapy hmm. I knew that we were connecting for a reason <laughs> so this is a conversation that you and I actually haven't had yeah but the acceptance and commitment therapy has played a big role in my life through mm. massive adversity that I've suffered uh about two and a half years ago and the happiness trap yep. was transformational for me so I know exactly what you're talking about so no wonder we're resonating yeah, at the same frequency awesome. right here with yeah. me. and I actually went to uh, Russ Harris's two-day workshop here in Sydney last month so oh, did you yeah wow. absolutely okay. yeah so for everyone Powerful. listening, if you if you haven't uh, read the book yeah. or followed any of Russ Harris's um, stuff, yeah. do it. It's yeah. it's absolutely amazing, and not that you have to have hidden from anything in not your past all. or no. suffered adversity. Yeah. It's skills that you learn how to deal with daily life from a different perspective. Yeah, it's the first book I refer people when they when they want to know more about the tools that I've learned to do it's the first one I refer there's the the confidence gap there's a reality slap um there's an, an act with love I think I've read them all um I've got the one for my kids <laughs> I've read the th the textbooks you know for therapists so I just really wanted to understand it more and I, I just love all the six different areas of act you know about um you know not fusing to those thoughts and defusing and what tools you can do and and even the the whole the light bulb moment for me which really made a difference is the thing they call the self as context so it's knowing that there's a you inside that isn't your thoughts or your feelings it's the you um you know that that no one can 
have an impact on. And when you realise that your thoughts and feelings are not you, they're just a part of you, that's powerful because it allows that space between you and your thoughts and your feelings. So if there's a space, you can actually do something in that space. And that for me, I would have to say, was probably the biggest transformational moment where I just went, wow, okay. So, you know, a lot of us get caught up in our own minds thinking that they're true, that they're factual, like the stuff that we tell ourselves, just because they're our own minds, that we have to believe it. In fact, we can be our worst enemy, right? Um, So knowing that when you do have thoughts that might not be helping you, that there's tools that you can just let them accept and let them go and make room for them, you know. I always say that the mind, the human mind, is the most powerful thing on the planet and we all have one. And when you can understand that there is these tools and these tactics that you can actually learn to help you control the most powerful powerful thing on the planet. Yeah. When I was exposed to this over the last couple of years and the more that I learn about it, I just think, wow, I, I wish I was exposed to it at a younger age, but I'm extremely grateful that I'm understanding it now. And I've been down the rabbit hole of neuro-linguistic programming and this acceptance and commitment therapy, uh, a lot of life coaching myself. And my coach is a functional neurology expert and that spent a lot of time with psych- some amazing psychologists over time. It just blows my mind yeah. how much control we actually have. Yeah. And the scary bit is, is we, we don't understand a lot, a lot of our mind, about the mind and the brain, do we? You know, I, I often wonder about, I wonder what we're going to unpack about ourselves that we're yet to know. But even like neuroplasticity is only the, the latest thing about our brains can change themselves. For so long, people thought they couldn't. I mean, that's so exciting, not only for disability, but for so many, that we can rewire the way we work. And, um, you know, having that growth mindset is that first point of being able to go, yeah, we can. I can learn new things. I can, I can change the way I am. But that that is, yeah, certainly. Carol Dweck. Carol Dweck. Yes, yeah, the, the, fixed, the fixed and growth mindset. Absolutely. So, oh, yeah. maybe we could chat all night. This oh, that's is amazing. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, With the uh, the mindset stuff mm. before, we'll, we'll actually talk about your sport a little bit here mm. in a second. But uh, I think it's important for people to understand. We talk about here. There's tools and tactics that people can can control their thoughts and I love the way you put it where you make the space you understand that your thoughts are not actually you but you accept that they're there and so you can step back away from those thoughts and you can operate still and we have the power to think whatever thoughts we want and those thoughts actually make us the thoughts lead to our feelings and it's our feelings that lead to our actions and our behaviours. Absolutely. And yeah. that can go quite deep and, and we yeah. can get right into that. But yeah. I think that was a real highlight for me when I realised that and I just went over that process and over yeah. it and then I thought, yeah, I believe that. Yeah. I, I do they, they drive everything. It happens in such a split second that people often say, I just react that way. I have no control of that. I just get angry when that happens. It's, you know, that's just what I do. But there's always a thought Always, even though you might not be able to think of it, <laughs> that drives our reaction. Always, and um, so when you understand that there's, you know, there's an event that happens, but there's always a thought that drives your reaction. If you can then slow down your thinking and practice things like I'm sure you've talked about mindfulness and um, just stopping and breathing. You know, breath is the only thing that they've shown in research that actually can really help us 
in these moments, particularly when we're a bit of a crisis or when we're, um, you know, when something's happened, a bit of an adversity or even a bit of heated discussion, you know, the only thing they've proved that can help reduce our stress levels and help to react well is actually just to stop and, and breathe. Um, so yeah, that helps create that space, right? Yeah, when you, when yeah. you actually do that, and then and then you can you know keep your thought. Just that breath can actually say, okay, well, what thought? If I don't actually have a space here, the thought might drive a reaction that I don't really want. So if you give yourself that space to then make sure you, you know, you start with a thought of what's most important and what do I really want to happen in this situation, then you can drive a better reaction. Well, and and I would even challenge that to say uh, instead of reacting, we're then responding. Yeah. And too often... Or creating. In society, exactly. You're creating. Instead of reacting, you're actually creating Creating. the outcome you want. Yeah. Yeah, because you, when you react... You are taking action on that yeah. feeling. Yeah. When you are responding, you're going that one step further and you're actually processing the thought. You're yeah. letting that go through your filtering yeah. system and then you're res- creating that space and then you're responding as opposed to reacting. That's right. And, you know, often we we do things really well and we often don't pat ourselves on the back because I think I said earlier to be positive and to find the positives is always harder to then easier to find the negatives so often in day-to-day we do stuff well we react or we create the right reaction that we want and um it's just often though if we find ourselves you know reacting in a way that is just not how we want to be known as um or we keep being stuck in that rut it keeps happening that behavior keeps coming up over and over and again um um, that that's our chance to look back and go, well, what, what's, what's actually driving this? What thoughts are driving it? And if I can actually unpack that um, and see where I might be getting caught up, there's a lot of cognitive traps we can get caught up in um, and maybe try and stop those traps from happening, then we can actually get a you know, get the outcome we're looking for. But it, it takes time. It takes a bit of time to it's unpack. It's a skill. It's a skill. It's a it's skill that, like any other skill, if you're interested, it takes some time and energy. And you've got to have that commitment to want to be a better be a better version of yourself or be the leader you want to be. That's or- right. And that's why I try to highlight it to people that this is one of the most powerful things on the planet and you have the ability to to take it to the next level and to learn a skill that can help you in every other asset aspect of your life. Yeah, that's it. Wow, what an amazingly inspirational woman. Katrina is proof that our lives are dictated by our minds, our own minds. And that's why it's so important and powerful to create belief and skills to tap into our inner excellence. Make sure you tune into part two with my chat with Webby, where we take it all to the next level. If you like this episode, please jump onto your podcast app and give us a five-star review. This helps immensely for me to be able to continue delivering value to you. It doesn't matter what app you're using, whether it's Apple Podcasts, which is formerly known as iTunes Podcast, whether it's Podcast Addict or Stitcher or whatever it is. You guys subscribing and downloading each episode is what keeps this podcast alive. And also, please share with your friends, your family, your community, and everyone you believe will benefit from this podcast. Don't forget to give me your feedback on what you loved and what you want to hear more of, so what value I can help bring into your reality. Reach out to us on social media, so Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Life for Excellence. That's at L-I-F-E. F-O-R-X-L-N-S. And you can also find us at yourlifeofimpact.com. 
And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact.